Robert Rulon Miller is the proprietor of Rulon Miller Books, based in St. Paul, Minnesota. The company specializes in rare, fine, and interesting books in many fields, first editions, Americana, literature, fine and early printing, travel, and the history of language. Mr. Rulon Miller started in the antiquarian book-selling business when he was a student, working uh, for his father. We pick up the conversation when he decides to leave his father in Rhode Island and set up shop in St. Paul. He was actually very generous. He let me select books from the stock and everything like that. But, uh, you know, I suddenly had to sort of make it on my own. He's from uh, Minneapolis as well? Rhode Island, which is where I grew up. I came here and sort of after I married a woman from Minnesota, but not the one I was telling you about. Uh, My first wife, I've been married twice. My first wife, Lucy, is who got me here to Minnesota. And after we were divorced, I mean, I'd made enough friends here and liked it enough. And, you know, I was sort of getting involved with the book community here. In Rhode Island, it would have been, I think it would have been tough there because between Boston and Washington, D.C., there are lots of antiquarian booksellers and there was no one out here. And so I got into a lot of libraries and collections that I ne- probably never would have gotten into in the East because there was so much competition there. I got very lucky, you know, I handled, you know, the, the elephant folio, Audubon's birds. Thanks to library that was... Uh... Wanted to upgrade the computer system, so they had to sell the book. And, you know, lots of really wonderful books came my way because there was no one else in the neighborhood, so to speak. I mean, it's not to say that they're not other used and out-of-print dealers here, because there are. But I was the only one who was really concentrating on antiquarian material. So that worked out pretty well. Antiquarian specifically is uh, what? Uh, well, fifteenth to eighteenth century. Nineteenth uh, century, and I suppose you could even call. I think a, what I call an antiquarian book really is a book that's valued as an object, as opposed to a book that's bought to be read. There are certainly people who sell modern first editions, Catcher in the Rye, or Faulkner, or Hemingway, or whomever. Uh, I think they all would qualify as antiquarian books. So you don't typically read them; you just have them. you just have them. Pick them up every six months and smell them. And so yeah, my father and I split up. I sold my first book actually in 1969, and I worked for him. It was his retirement business. He sold his business, the plastics business in Rhode Island, and you know got a little dough for it. And he he'd been a collector all his life, so he decided to turn his collection into an inventory, as many people do. And that's when I was a teenager and just started working for him and pretty much fell into it. Well, you, you must have enjoyed it, too. I, I did. I, my plan, of course, was to be an English professor <laughs> because, you know, I like books, too. I like to read. But uh, this sort of opened up my eyes to a whole new part of books, a whole new field that uh, really was unknown to me, even though I'm my father and collector. An entrepreneurial side to uh, your love of books. Yeah. I mean, everyone who's in this business is sort of an entrepreneur. Unless you're independently wealthy, you know, every month it's like putting a gun to your head and pulling the trigger and see if the, see if the bullet comes out or not, because you just don't know what's, you know, you don't know what you're going to sell today. There have been times, and these right now are really among the most difficult. You know, we, we just go three, four, five days and don't sell it. I mean, nothing happens. Are you online or not? Oh, yeah. You got everything online? Pretty much everything we've got cataloged. I've got about 84, 8,500 books online. I think there are about 20,000, 25,000 books in the house. But it's just stuff that we haven't, either it's not worth processing or stuff I don't want to sell yet or part of my own collection or reference books. You, you moved to Minneapolis. Late 70s. Until past years at this point. You had an opportunity to, uh, to, to come across 
lots of books that you might not have otherwise. Exactly. Could you give us some examples? Well, there was a lot of deaccessioning going on in the libraries. A big group of material came to me from the Minnesota Historical Society. They used to have, they've stopped now, but they were having sort of regular auctions, sealed bid auctions, which were only open to local booksellers. And some significant material that the local booksellers didn't understand. So I did very well with those. Uh, the James J. Hill Library, which is where the Audubon came from, as well as a lot of other fine books, uh, just had these books that belonged to James J. Hill, who was the railroad tycoon. He founded the Northern Pacific okay. Railroad. And that, as well as many other business dealings, uh, mining was another one. But um, he had bought books during his lifetime, uh, I think because uh, people told him he should have a library, not because he had any interest in them. Uh, uh, <coughs> and so it was and, a strict and investment on his part. It wasn't even an investment. Prestige. I mean, you know, the guy was uh, so at, rich. At he the, just... uh, yeah, he's you know like Morgan and Vanderbilt. Yeah. I mean, he was of that ilk. I think he just bought them because someone told him he should have them, or because he saw Morgan had library <laughs> that he should have. Them. And he he funded this beautiful library downtown St. Paul, which half of it's now the St. Paul Public, and the other half is called the James J. Hill Reference Library. They had this group of five hundred books or something that they just didn't. You know, it was just sitting in a locked room. They didn't know what to do with them. You know, a million dollars worth of books. Actually, it was a complicated deal. I had not not a customer of mine, but an acquaintance here in town who bought them for, I think, one point. I can't even remember what the price was now because this goes back 10 or 12 years, but 1.3 or 1.4 million. And uh, he consigned them all back to me. <laughs> he picked out the, you know, the things that he wanted, consigned them all back to me. Uh, at very favorable rates, and so. So you uh, got a percentage. So I got a percentage of it, and the books all sold because they were so good. They all sold very quickly and for lots of money. So. Oh, wonderful! Uh, when was that? Ninety three, ninety four, somewhere along in there. Right. That must have been a rush. Oh yeah, and you know there <coughs> there were some big collectors here. Uh, in fact, one of the governors of Minnesota, Elmer Anderson, who uh, had been a big collector long before I was even in town. Um, I don't know, we sort of struck up a friendship, and he ended up giving a lot of his stuff away to the university, but uh, there was a period there uh, when he was mad at the university, and he said, I'm going to sell my books. <laughs> so we did <clears throat> probably about seven or eight catalogs of books of his. And again, you know, this is everything from 15th century to right up to modern. A vast library. He had a house uh, probably about the size of this. And the whole basement was fitted out like a public library. I mean, he had just all these standing shelves and books just everywhere. It was and great. he had collected them over the course he collected of his lifetime? Them, yeah, and he was, when I met him, he was 80, and he lived to be 93 or 94, I guess, something like that. Uh-huh. Uh, so I, I only knew him at the end of his life, but, of course, I had the opportunity of dealing with, you know, these books that he bought back in the 50s and 60s, even 40s. He'd been a collector pretty much all his life, so... He owned a company called H.B. Fuller. I, I think of them as being a glue company. They did a lot of industrial adhesives, and it was a Fortune 500 company. And he bought it in his youth. I mean, you know, back when he was 30 or 40, and I don't think he paid anything for it. But he was a very smart businessman. The thing just took off, and he made himself a very, very wealthy man. And as I say, he was also governor of Minnesota, state legislature, and just a wonderful, humane mm-hmm. person. So th- these were a couple of big big successes that you'd had. Yeah, and there was, you know, the St. Paul Public Library wanted to get rid of books. I handled the 
sale of them that I've been doing work for the University of Minnesota. Occasionally they'll get some uh, books to deaccession. I still work for the Historical Society. You know, I'm friends with all the, you know, friends with all the librarians. We're all part of a local book collecting club. So, you know, we all see each other pretty regularly. It's, it's been very it's been very good. And I do a lot of book fairs, you know, pretty much worldwide. Which, uh, which are the best one for you? Well, the best one always is New York. The domestic fairs financially are better. Domestic meaning to the U.S.? Yeah. But, you know, I've done fairs in any number of cities in Europe and Tokyo. And two weeks or a week and a half now, I'm going off to Hong Kong to exhibit in Hong Kong. So what tends to sell uh, the best? Is there any particular... You know, if I knew... <laughs> yeah, you stick with that. You know, yeah. and I just sort of buy books that I like. And, you know, I like them for various reasons, either because of the binding they're in or what the book is or, you know, what the paper is printed on. Or and I just try and pass along my enthusiasm for books... Uh, for, for a particular book. I mean, that's what my catalog descriptions are all about. You know, I get myself all, all jacked up over the book and, and try and write a nice description and, yeah. you know, try and make some money on it. Yeah. But, you know, you look at all these books here and uh, everyone says, oh, you know, what wonderful books. And uh, my common response is that these are all my mistakes. Because <laughs> they're still <laughs> I, here. Because I can't yeah. sell them. And, you know, a lot of times, you know, when you get big libraries, and this has happened, you know, dozens of times, you, you know, you'll get a truckload of books and you know you're not buying a single book and you, but you know you're going to be able to make money on it so you just take these books and you some pretty of, well you pretty well have to take the whole library or are you able to pick and choose it, it depends yeah. obviously you know if there's only 10 percent that's good well maybe you want to try and pick and choose on that one but you know if it's 80 percent good you'll take the other 20 and perhaps you could uh, share some of your enthusiasms with us then <laughs> are there what what have you gotten the most excited about I don't have an answer for that. Uh, you know, I can get very excited about a $25 book. Like which one, for example? Well, I can't think of one offhand because okay. it's only $25. <laughs> okay. But, I mean, you know, I, it, just whether I'm out in another bookshop looking for books or a book fair or something like that. And even the fact that you find something Just the fact that I find something undervalued, that's... Undervalued, maybe? And well, I mean, you know, we all have our tales of paying $5,000 for a book and turning around and selling it for fifty. Well, we don't uh, all have that. Well, all of, all of some... All rare the, books. I think do. most of the... Big booksellers. Well, everyone's got a story of a big hit like that. Yeah. Well, can you can you convey one to it? Well, yeah. I mean, that example of five thousand, fifty thousand. I suppose that's is that a big enough uh, I mean, time yeah. step? And this was a bookseller who you know supposedly knew what he was doing. Had the book priced at uh, five thousand dollars. Actually, I think he had it priced at seventy five hundred, and I think I got him down to five or something like that. And I, even in this time of the internet, where all the prices. This was prior is, to the internet. Oh, okay. Okay. So this Much is, more difficult to do yes, now because yeah. everyone's prices public up there for the world to see. I just like when I saw the book. I just liked the book. I mean, I just, I didn't realize it was as good as I, I just felt that I could get more than five thousand bucks for it. And you know, I came back and looked it up in auction records and and what was it? It was a medical book uh, on circulation, and it wasn't Harvey. It was the guy who preceded William Harvey. Harvey did the, I think did the circulation of the blood predecessor. of Harvey's. So you you sort of specialize in reference books, and this is what you tend to fall into? Well, into, uh, we started talking earlier about, you know, when I was first in the business on, on my own, you know, I had to go out and try and find something that not only interested me, but I thought that I could actually sell. And I started running across, it happened at a very specific date, it was at the Boston Book Fair, and this was right after my father and I split up, so, you know, we're probably talking about 79, late 70s, 80, something like that. 
I was just out sort of buying books, and I got back to my booth and found all the books that I bought. About, you know, half of them or 40% of them were dictionaries and grammars. And I've always been interested in words and language and writing. At the time, there was no one who was specializing in it. And so I said, hey, well, this is kind of interesting. So for about two years, I did nothing but buy them, didn't sell them and assembled enough, you know, when I got to 300 or something like that, I put out this big catalog of dictionaries and grammars. It was a big success. I said, okay, <laughs> I'm going to keep doing this. When you have a catalog, did you, at that point, did you have a mailing list that you... Uh, oh, yeah, because we'd had... Developed? Yeah, because when I was father? working with my father, I mean, as I mentioned, my father was really very generous when we split up, you know, take the mailing list. Uh, he was still selling books at the time, too. He, he sort of retired down in the tropics and, you know, just to keep himself busy in life, he... You know, had to have books to play with. Play with. I mean, he did, didn't do it very seriously. I mean, he never did book fairs. He never went scouting. Which he, is he such did. a thrill, isn't it? I mean, both those aspects of the game. Yeah, and scouting. I mean, a lot of people now say scouting is dead, but that's not true. I mean, there's plenty of books out there. Plenty. Of, still, I mean, stores have closed for sure. There's still shops out there, and even the people like myself who I've never had an open shop. We've always had private premises by appointment only yeah but uh you know there are a lot of people like me out there and you just give them a call i mean you can't just sort of drop in you're usually going to announce yourself but uh, and deals can be found at these places then? yep how so i mean is it basically you negotiate with them or you see something that well i mean you can you can just look on the shelf because they're not they, going to underprice it though these days well it depends first of all they have to be able to find a price and if they have something that's not on the net they have to pull a price out of the air this oh, is how they used, used to work Right. Really. And still, I mean, we all still pull prices out of the air anyway. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, my 8,000 books online, I, you know, I'm willing to bet that half of them, I've got the only copy that's available online. That's not to say that it's the only copy, but, you know, it's the only copy that's available right at this particular moment. With Maybe. all of those, you would you would be the one that come up, comes up with right. the pr- price that you're comfortable selling it for. Right. Yeah. And then, of course, someone does get a copy of the, of the book. They go online, they see my price. Well, they may cut, cut it by 10%. Cut, cut it by 10% or 20% or something like that, but... I've never, some booksellers have actually gone to the trouble of going and repricing everything, and I just haven't. I've done it occasionally, but it's too much work. Well, apparently there's software out there that as soon as someone comes up with a price that's lower than yours, yours automatically yeah, goes. changes, yeah. Better World Books, are you familiar with them? It's got a, it's a wonderful business model, and if you're really interested in what things, how things are moving, you should talk to them. It's a big warehouse is outside of Notre Dame, Indiana. Mishawaki, I think, is the, I think is the name of the town. But this guy developed software that did just, I think he was the first one to do it. And he's a Minnesotan guy, actually. They, he has his own inventory? Yeah, they got a million-something books. They've got this huge warehouse. I mean, you could take a five-iron, and you couldn't get to the other end. With a driver, you could, but... <laughs> yeah, not all of us, but... they got about 30 or 40 people who work there. It's all automated. You know, you put the book on the conveyor belt, and it comes out at the end all wrapped, labeled, and ready to go. They're the second biggest... These are all used? used all used, and what, they're, and what they're doing is they're getting them all out of libraries. They're trying to get libraries to give it to them on consignment, so they don't own any of these books. Well, maybe they're going into goodwill as well. sad thing is, for us who love to go searching for treasures, the more and more companies like this one who get into our hunting places, yeah, it, it, the less fun it becomes. Yeah, it annoys me because they've gotten a lot of books out of the University of Minnesota. I was speaking to the librarian there. I said, Jesus, I mean, you know, give them the $2 books, that's fine. But, you know, you don't give them anything dumb because, you know, they're going to sell them for, you could do much better selling them through me, for example, or even just sending them to auction. In fact, I've got a meeting over there uh, next week, right before I go to Hong Kong, to talk to them about that. Why couldn't they get the same amount from Better World? Well, Better World give them... 
a better perspective. Because I don't think Better World understands the antiquarian market. I think they understand how to sell a book for a dime and 25 cents. And They would just research the price of a particular book and stick it online for a thousand bucks then let's say right but i think that a company like better world has a harder time selling a thousand dollar book than i would because they don't because have the contact they don't have, you do right they just stick it up online right and wait for someone to bite right but when you I would think, proactively go after a list sure i'd of, take i'd take you know if the university gives me a thousand dollar book to sell i'll take it to a book fair i'll stick it in my catalogs you know a year goes by and i can't sell it i'll go back to them and say hey can we reduce the price a little bit, and then we'll move it on maybe to another dealer. I mean, yeah, I've only got 8,000 books. I, most of them, believe it or not, are in my head. But they've got, you know, one point however many million books they have. They can't do that. I mean, they just don't have the staff. They don't have, the, as you say, the... They're the, just moving volume. They're just moving volume. But one of the things that they do there, which is very interesting, if they can't sell the book within, I think they say, a year, they uh, offer... Of course, the libraries can get them back, but they offered to give the books, work through this Books for Africa program. Mm-hmm. And all these books end up going, the ones that the universities don't want back and that the better world has not been able to sell, get shipped off to Africa. They're trying to be green about the whole thing, you know. And I've ordered books from them, you know, just books for my reference or books that I wanted to read. And, you know, they're very professional. I'm speaking to Robert Rulon Miller. And Rulon Miller is hyphenated, so alphabetically uh, in the phone book you'd look me up under the R's, okay. <laughs> not under the M's. Who is a rare book dealer based in St. Paul, Minnesota. So we started off, and you had indicated that you can make a good living doing this, but that to make real money you need more capital. You know, the grass is always greener. You know, people see this big house and come in and see this room and, you know, they're, God, this guy's loaded. Well, to someone who's making, you know, a library assistant who's making $35,000 a year, well, I am loaded. But, you know, I've always sort of tried to get to the top end of the book trade and uh, I'm just, I can't do it because there are people in this business who just have, you know, oodles of money. You know, I live pretty much off cash flow. Someday down the road, there'll be a small inheritance coming and I've owned this house for 20 years, so I get a lot of equity in the house. It's more like a mansion. Well, people think it's a mansion. It's it's a big house, 8,400 square feet. <laughs> we want to be precise about it. As you say, there's taxes, there's TD bills. It's yeah. interesting. I, I interviewed John Ronowski oh, sure. of Lame Duck Books about a year and a half ago, yeah. and he mentioned the same sort of thing. I guess the key is to line up partners who sure. have the equity. Uh, and, and I do have partners who have money. In fact, a number of these books that you see here are, are jointly owned by two, three, I think probably in some cases four. I don't think I have any that are owned five ways, but I've certainly been involved in deals that have had that many people involved. There's all sorts of advantages to that because, you know, you share the cost, you share the risk, you double the possibility of selling the book because you're now dealing not only with my customers, but I'm dealing with my with my partner's customers as well. So, uh, that works out pretty well. I guess I'd be rather have the money and have partners come to me instead of me being the, the poor bookseller going out and looking for money. How does it happen then? Let's say you come across something that's a, a really good deal, but you just don't have the, the money oh, that's when to I grab call, it. That's when I call partners. And, but you need to move quickly. Yep. My biggest partner, the guy I'm in business with most, is this guy Jeff Marks from Rochester, New York. If I got to spend $10,000, I'll write a check for $10,000. I'll get on the phone and say, Jeff, quick, I need $10,000, and the money will be wired. He in the book business, or is he in something else? Oh, no, 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 he's, he's in the book business. He's sort of under the radar, but very major player, particularly in modern, modern literature. Talking from the perspective of a young person who is gripped with the young 
yeah, I think someone, let's say, in their 30s, who's gripped with a uh, passion to collect. And they don't have huge amounts of money, but they've got, I don't know, 10,000 bucks for the year, let's say, that they've allocated. So let's assume they love modern first editions, and they have a few authors that they're particularly keen on. Well, I would, first of all, gain the trust of a respected dealer. I mean, I think the people in the book trade can be collectors' best friends. And I'm not just talking about becoming friends. Partners. Yeah, if I know that a, a person's interested in Faulkner, for example, and I get an interesting Faulkner item, and this guy's come and bought some other Faulkner from me, and he's truly passionate about it, next time I get you know an interesting Faulkner item, this is this is the guy I'd, I'd call. I think that it's a mistake for young people to think, oh, I'm just going to go out there on the on the net and uh, look and see what everyone's got, and I'm going to buy the cheapest copy which almost always is a mistake. You should probably buy the most expensive copy, that you can, or at least the best copy you can. Can afford. Or you mean you, in, in terms of condition, afford. but you can't really tell that until you put your hands on right. it. Right, but if you're dealing with someone who, you know, 20 years ago, I don't know how many booksellers there were in this country. I mean, maybe there were 1,500. Rare antiquarians. Yeah, and that may even be high. Now, I mean, I can't tell you how many booksellers there are. I mean, there are five times that at least, and... Most of the people up there who are selling books on the net, not all of them, of course, but most of them, I mean, they were just people who had books in their house and they wanted to get rid of them and they formed a little LLC or whatever it is they did and they suddenly became a business. And, you know, this goes professors and people who go sweeping flea markets for books. And most of the people online, I think, don't really know too much about it. And for young collectors, I think it's best to find someone that they can trust and who knows what they're doing. About five or six years ago, I did something similar. I, I had an opportunity to buy buy some books, so I decided, just because it was fun, that was my hobby, I put them, put them up online. And for a while, I was making five or six hundred bucks a month, and I thought, wow, this is, and I loved it. But after about two or three years, I noticed that the prices of these books were going down, down, came to a point where I wasn't making as anywhere near as much as I was to start with. So I eventually just folded it. Yeah. Well, it's a. I think for the modern books, and by modern I mean you know twentieth century and beyond, it's a race to the bottom for the most part, except for the highlights, those iconic books, you know, like Catcher in the Rye or something. I've been very fortunate in that most of my books are nineteenth century and earlier. And when I said earlier, you know, that out of my eight thousand books, you know, I bet four thousand of them that I may have the only copy, or that may be an exaggeration. Maybe it's only twenty five hundred or three thousand, but. You know, you go look any one of these online, and you're not going to find 75 copies for yeah. sale as you will with many, many 20th century books, because these mostly are books that don't turn up at flea markets, and they don't turn up. I mean, they'll turn up at antiquarian book fairs, but they're not going to show up at you know, flea markets, and they're not going to show up generally in people's private libraries. Most people don't have most people don't have books anymore. Sure. It's shocking. So, finding a, a good, trustworthy, knowledgeable expert uh, book dealer—that's the first piece of advice. Any other words of wisdom for these? Get out and see as many books as they can. I, you know, I don't think a novice has a real good sense for the difference between, say, a very good copy and a fine copy, unless they've seen lots of them. So the more books you see, the more books you handle, the better up a young collector would be. And I think getting to the best place to do that is at book fairs. The big antiquarian fairs, and the, I mean, not a weekend goes by, I don't think, in this country where there's not a fair. Getting to them is often a problem, but you know, if you're patient, one's going to come to your city or come to the city next door. You'll meet some interesting people there. Another thing you can do, and I'll give you a shameless plug for this uh, school that I'm a director of, the Colorado Antiquarian 
book seminar. Yeah. Uh, heard of that. Which has been this will be our this next year will be our thirty first. I've been director of it for about for about six or seven years now. We, it's a week long seminar, generally for uh, booksellers. We get probably about fifty or sixty percent of the people who attend are people aspiring booksellers or people who've just gotten in the trade and want to learn more about it. But the other forty percent or so is divided really between librarians and collectors, and it's a great way for a collector to understand how the book trade works. We've got a great faculty out there. We've got four past presidents of the Antiquarian Booksellers Association of America. We've got Terry Ballinger, who is a MacArthur Fellow from Rare Book School at the University of Virginia. We've got some great people who are really right at the top of the class for technology, software, and hardware. I mean, I go there. Every year I learn something, too. Mm -hmm. It's a great... How much does it cost? The tuition is $1,195. For the week. For the week, plus there's some room and board involved in that. There's some choices there. You can stay at the cheap hotel or you can go to the... I mean, that's all sort of up to the person to decide. If you sign up before... We run this in August, usually the first week of August. If you sign up before May 1st, uh, you get 100 bucks off, so it's only 10.95 instead of 11.95. Then room and board's on top of that, right? And room and board would be on top of it. Okay. We're worried this year, of course, because getting people in but we have lots of scholarships available we get scholarship from aid books uh, we get scholarships from barnes and noble we're getting scholarships from uh, a libris we're getting scholarships from abaa the our professional association um, people who could apply for those scholarships yeah yeah i mean we're a non-profit the, the the scholarships actually i think most of them are for the full 1195 there's some that do half scholarships there are a couple of other local bookseller organizations like rocky mountain Bookseller Association offers, I think, half offers two half scholarships. And typically, how many students per year? Oh, fifty to sixty, something like that. Mm-hmm. It, it's really well. I think it's a wonderful thing, and I'm worn out actually because <laughs> it's a lot of work to sort of be in charge. And I'm trying to pass the reins off to someone, but so far I can't find anyone who <laughs> wants to do it. Some years ago, quite a few years ago, I took a. He was out of Seattle, and I took it in. Oh, sure, uh, uh, David Greger. He, he actually goes around the country. Yep, he was. I'm not so sure he's doing it so much anymore. Okay. He was doing that, and uh, his program also uh, equally good. I think he still does do it sort of Portland, Seattle, uh, but I don't think he's traveling around like he used to. Yeah, because I took it in Boston. He's also been a big supporter of ours, too, and a lot of people who have taken his course have ended up in Colorado. No, David's done a great service to the book trade. We need more people like him. Where is it going then, uh, based on your own experience and the book trade? Yeah, it's not going anywhere. I mean, it's the second oldest profession, you know. There's always going to be a book trade. You know, the dynamics are certainly have changed considerably over the last ten or fifteen years, and may still change. I mean, I'm not so technologically astute to be able to tell you how or what might happen. But is there a younger generation that's coming in to fill the? shoes of those who are... Well, everyone always, that's the big complaint, of course, that there are no young collectors, but I'm not the first to point out that there never really were a lot of young collectors, because it takes money. As I say, unless you're independently wealthy, you know, a 27-year-old, you know, who's trying to become bank manager and then bank vice president, at 27, he doesn't have the money to spend. There are lots of less expensive things one can buy, too. Uh, an interesting example of just a collection that was put together for nothing, which which actually turned out to be a fascinating collection. And this is someone I don't know. This was a story that was told in Colorado. 
I don't know if you're familiar with these little, generally these books were published sort of from the 1880s, maybe up into the 1920s or 30s. And there were these little books that were in these sort of these cushy bindings. They were sort of like almost like a pillow. They were generally in, in suede bindings, but there was, I don't know how they actually made them. But the, it, to look at one book, it's the tackiest, most god-awful book you've ever seen. It's they were often gift books. I have, a, I have one, I think, by Kipling's Ballard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It could be something was, like that. It was a very, it's almost like a felt-type cover. Well, Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, but I'm, I'm making a distinction now. If you're thinking of the Roycroft Press, for example. No, no, no but, not, I, but you're familiar with the Roycroft. Yeah, okay. I am, yeah. Well, this could be, because Kipling would be the sort of person, Longfellow, sort of those... those sentimental favorites of, of that era. Anyway, you know, when you find these books, you can buy them for, you know, 10 cents just because no one wants them. Well, there was this one guy who went and bought as many of them as he could, and he got, he got hundreds of them. And to see that particular style of book in a hundred different editions was actually a fascinating collection. You know, a collection that would actually be saleable, I think, to, you know, research library or institution mm-hmm. of some sort. Would that be... One of your key markets is a research institution or library. Well, I saw I, I saw a lot to uh, to the institutional market. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm pretty fortunate. I mean, my my breakdown is pretty much a third, a third, a third between a third private collectors, a third other booksellers, and third uh, the 30% to institutions. Yeah, right. So it's balanced. I mean, that varies from year to year, but that's if you look back over the last 30 years, that's basically how it sort of averages out. I think. So, in terms of the future, you don't you don't have any strong feelings one way or the other about where things are going. Well, uh, of course, I, <laughs> I hope they uh, the market booms again. I mean, as you know, everyone's sort of taking stock at this moment, uh, just because of where we are in the world financially. Everyone's sort of retrenched. Everyone's thinking, "My God, do I need to have all this, uh, all these books on the shelves? Uh, you know, is there going to be a future here? Am I ever going to be able to make enough money to pay the rent?" mortgage or whatever and we're all thinking about that you know I've definitely cut back in terms uh, of purchasing or uh, terms of purchasing I'm much more inclined now to take stuff on consignment than I would to buy it outright I, I don't I, I wish I had the answers I don't but there will always be a book market for sure mm-hmm. I don't think there's any question about that and I think that the the best books will still get the strongest prices the highlights will always be highlights but as time goes Along, uh, I suppose more and more authors will be designated as as great, and therefore. Well, of course, that changes too. I mean, back in the thirties and twenties, thirties and forties, people like John Macefield and John Galsworthy were were people were paying thousands of dollars for these books. I mean, that was a lot of money back then. Today, you can't practically can't give them away. Odd, isn't it? Because it's a bunch of it is personal taste. It's either are they in the canon or are they not in the canon? Is that what provides the value? Is well, yeah, so it is. X number of people like Harold Bloom has designated Goldsworthy's uh, Foresight Saga as being part of the canon. Therefore, that one would get a That's lot more one. than right. two let or one of these other less lesser known ones. Right. It, it's been acknowledged by some expert. Therefore, it's been given. Yes, but this, of course, is one of my great beefs about the book trade is that these books, like Bloom's or Printing in the Mind of Man, for example, you know, here we have a bunch of supposed experts, or these lists, you know, the 100 best books in yeah. American literature, 100 best. These experts, supposed experts, you know, are telling the collector what to collect. 
another book along that line is uh, Cyril Connolly's uh, the, the Modern yeah. Movement. And it annoys me to no end. I, I'm at a book fair, and someone comes up and says, do you have any Modern Movement titles? Mm-hmm. Well, to me, this guy is dumb. Mm-hmm. He's, <laughs> He's given his opinion over to someone else. Exactly. It makes me think that they're of, they have limited curiosity. They've done a limited amount of reading themselves. And they've, yeah, they're they have haven't some... taken the trouble to foster their own set of opinion. When I go out looking for books, the last thing I'm looking for is Connolly's Modern Movement or even printing in the Mind of Man titles, unless, of course, I can buy them and think I can resell them again. <laughs> I'm looking for stuff I've never seen. You know, I'm much more interested in a book printed in Borneo in 1820 in some language that we have, I can't even... Why? Just because it's unique? Because I'm, well, probably because, it, yes, because it's unique or possibly unique. And uh, I think those books, I mean, I know how to sell those books. Mm-hmm. And I'm interested in the history of the book in general. I, I'm, part of the, my interest in language, really, is... You know, a lot of these early dictionaries and grammars, primers and so forth that were printed were done by missionaries in the middle of nowhere for the sole purpose of converting, you know, the heathens. Not just religion, but the la- our language, our culture as well. Well, that we want to be able to, the, the missionaries want to be able to teach the Bible to the Karen tribe in Burma or something like that. They have to teach them English before they'll be able to read well, our, they also, our Bible. Or they... Or that uh, when they're able to translate the Bible into Karen, they want to pre- be able to present it to them so that they can read it in their own language. Mm-hmm. So a lot of that, gra- a lot of those grammars and dictionaries were as much for the for the for the missionaries' use as, as much as it was for the for the tribal use. You have so to, I've been meaning to ask this from the beginning: Have you ever had, or do you have, Johnson's dictionary? I have many editions at the moment, <laughs> but the first edition I just sold one about. A very beat up copy about two months ago was the first one but yeah the first edition now see that's a a book that doesn't interest me so much because first of all it's common anytime I need a copy I mean if you go online you'll, I'm sure you'll find a half dozen copies for sale at various prices and you know it's so well known so well documented in everybody's list of you know the hundred greatest books in English or whatever that book holds no interest at all to me I mean, when I had to it, you personally, to me personally, when I had it the first time, I got very, you know, and I was able to learn about it. But I know just about everything there is to know about Johnson's Dictionary. New book recently about the writing of it. Yeah, the great one by Alan Reddick, uh, The Making of Johnson's Dictionary. We also bought the library of a guy named Gwyn, Gwyn Kolb, professor down at University of Chicago, who in 1955 wrote a book called Johnson's Dictionary, uh, the 200th anniversary, 1755 to 1955. Uh, he was a great Johnsonian scholar, and uh, that was another great library that we got down there. You should be three, able to three, sell it this coming year because it's the 300th uh, anniversary of his birthday. His yeah. birth, yeah. And there's been a new biography that's just been written by Peter Martin that's uh, getting great reviews. Which I haven't read. So that one doesn't excite you so much, but you... No, I'm much more interested in, in finding some little glossary. A glossary of what? In the English language? like A glossary of mining terms printed in South Africa. All right, well, you know, mines are in South Africa. they just interested to see how the, what the English, the South African English terms would be for mining. I don't know. It's just somehow that seems more interesting to me than, than you know, Johnson's Dictionary or Webster's Dictionary or... And and there's going to be a market for that. Oh, absolutely. No. Why is there we're, we're not, this is not multi? This is not a multi thousand dollar 
Because there are many people interested in English. Just the actual, how the English language has evolved. Yeah. And all the influences that, and, and, and it being the kind of language that absorbs everything. Yeah. Well, thanks very much for taking the time to talk to us about your life as an antiquarian bookseller and to provide us with uh, collecting advice. I've been speaking with Robert Rulon Miller, who is the proprietor of Rulon Miller Books, based in St. Paul, Minneapolis. <laughs>